It is so good to be with you on this beautiful morning. The geese on cue, the sun that I just left, so I may bring some firewood next week, build a little fire up here, but it is good to be with you. We are transitioning today. If you have been part of our gatherings over the recent months, I think we've had 17 or so messages from the Psalms, and today we are transitioning toward Christmas, toward Christmas Eve, the season of Advent, where we celebrate the coming of Jesus some 2,000 years ago, the coming of the Messiah. And the season of Advent is also a season of anticipation as we look forward to him coming again. So we begin a new series today in the Sermon on the Mount. We're calling it Christmas on the Mount. And we will be looking at just a few verses each week beginning today through Christmas Eve. My prayer for you and my prayer for me this Christmas season is that you and I would be blessed. If you read the scriptures, if you study the scriptures, you will see that it is God's will for you and for me as his followers to be blessed. As you read the scriptures and as we look at this Sermon on the Mount today in the coming days, we're going to see that the idea, the characteristics of blessing are very different from the scripture as they are from our world. If we want to know what it looks like to be blessed by God, we cannot look at the world. We have to look at his word. Do you know what a blessed person looks like? The world that we live in views blessing so differently than God does. We live in a world where each person does what is right in his or her own mind. We live in a world generally where each person decides their own truth. I have my truth. You have your truth. I determine what is right for me. You determine what is right for you. And I determine what blessing looks like. If the world was going to write eight beatitudes, and these verses that we're going to be looking at in the Sermon on the Mount, if you're not familiar with that, are called beatitudes. If the world was going to write eight beatitudes of blessing, it might look something like this. Blessed are the self-confident, for they will be rich, powerful, and highly esteemed by others. Blessed are those who laugh at sin, for they will have fun, pleasure, and exciting lives. Blessed are the strong, for they will dominate the weak and win. Blessed are the pluralistic, for they will affirm everyone. Blessed are the powerful, for they exercise authority and dominate others. Blessed are they who find their own way, for they reject authority, external authority. Blessed are those who destroy their enemies, for they write the history books. Blessed are those who persecute others, for they rule over all. 
This might be the way that our enemy would inspire our worldly culture to write an anti-sermon on the Mount. I want to say, no matter how difficult your circumstances are in this unprecedented year of 2020, that it is God's will for you to be blessed this Christmas season. If you believe that this morning, will you say amen? It, it is God's will for you to be blessed this season of Christmas 2020. I want to take you back briefly to the Christmas season of 1943. A Christ follower named Dietrich Bonhoeffer was in a small part of a massive concentration camp called Sachsenhausen. Since he came from a prominent German family, this Christ follower was in the white collar prison, if you will, of the concentration camp. He was in a nice place, Camp Tegel, compared to where many people were. And this particular Christmas season, 1943, December 17th, he writes a letter to his parents. He, he says this in the letter. I don't need to tell you how much I long for freedom and for you all. But over the decades, you, speaking to his parents, you have provided for us, referring to the, his siblings, such incomparably beautiful Christmases that my thankful remembrance of them is strong enough to light up one dark Christmas. Only such times can really reveal what it means to have a past and an inner heritage that is independent of chance and the changing of times. The awareness of a spiritual tradition that reaches through the centuries gives one a certain feeling of security in the face of all transitory difficulties. I don't know if you're tracking with me or not, but I want to read that sentence again. This sentence in this letter from a prison cell, Christmas season 1943, is why I'm reading this paragraph. This has something to say to us today in the season that we are in, in 2020. Listen to this sentence he writes again. The awareness of a spiritual tradition that reaches through the centuries gives one a certain feeling of security in the face of all transitory difficulties. Today, we are looking back about 20 centuries to the living and written word of God, to a sermon that Jesus preached. It transcends the centuries. It transcends time. And it is here to help us through this Christmas season. You know, the reality is our difficulties are few compared to the evil that Bonhoeffer faced. Our enemy, Satan, then was working through a wicked and powerful ideology that obtained massive power. These, these false ideas of, of German supremacy and anti-Semitism were, were just expanding massively, putting Bonhoeffer in prison. 
neither Satan nor his agents were successful in ruining Bonhoeffer's Christmas in 1943. Now, to be clear, the difficulties that we're facing in 2020 have a satanic origin as well. But the enemy that you and I face is is not one another. It is not a racist or anti-Semitic regime. Our enemy is a virus that can be lethal to the elderly and to those at risk. The victory against this virus is not far off. And in reality, COVID has nothing to do with whether you have a blessed Christmas or not. COVID has nothing to do with whether you have a blessed Christmas or not. For the Christ follower, living on a remote island that has no viruses, or the Christ follower living in prison, or the Christ follower living in the midst of a global pandemic, a blessed Christmas season can be yours. All things are possible through him who strengthens us, through him who strengthens us. Emmanuel, God is with us. Our theme today through Christmas Eve is Christmas on the Mount. A blessed Christmas season is a season in which, by God's grace, we live out the teachings of Jesus in this famous sermon. I want to take a look at it now. We're just looking at a few verses. I hope you have your Bibles or devices open to Matthew chapter 5. Let's begin looking at the introduction to this sermon, just the first two verses, verses 1 and 2. Now, when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. Have you noticed that? I'm standing. Do you guys notice? You're all sitting. Jesus goes up to preach his most famous sermon and he sits down. You ever notice that? So I'm thinking I need a chair and all you need to stand up. So I think that's how it was back then. It's backwards. He sat down. I think they were all standing. He saw the crowds. He went up on a mountainside and he sat down. His disciples came to him. Verse 2. And he began to teach them saying. Before we look at the first two of eight of the Beatitudes. I want to just flip over very briefly. You can just listen to the end. The sermon goes all the way through chapter seven. Then we get a summary at chapter eight and verse one. When he came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. So I'm jumping to eight one just to give you a sense that this was a massive crowd. Jesus taught this This famous sermon, this sermon on the mount, we would say it was on a foothill. It was in the foothills of the region of Galilee, near the Sea of Galilee that we would call a lake. It's not that huge. And he's up on this this mountainside, sitting down. His disciples are there, and that we know from 8-1 that there's a ton of other people there as well. So he's preaching to people who are spiritually all over the place. And he preaches this famous message. And I can't go any further without mentioning what of 
my favorite moments in life preaching was preaching Matthew 5, 1 to 11 on a hillside above the Sea of Galilee. Somewhere very close, we don't know exactly where Jesus preached this message, but there were a bunch of folks, mostly from Calvary Chapels in Southern California, um, on the hillside, they were, they were standing. A few of them were sitting. I was standing. If I were biblical, I would have sat down. But I was standing, and they were standing, and it was a beautiful time. And I can't really go further without just telling you I'm thinking about that moment right now. So there's this large crowd in the disciples, and Jesus begins to tell them, what it looks like to be blessed. And it is so far from what it looks like if you look at our world and you look at our movies and you look at our pop culture and you look at your neighbors and you think from a worldly perspective what it means to be blessed, you ain't going to find that here. It is so far removed, church. So when I say on God's authority, on the authority of the word of God, that you can have a blessed Christmas, I don't mean what you might be thinking if you look out at the world. I mean what Jesus taught on that small hillside above the Sea of Galilee some 2,000 years ago. The key to blessing is not to look at the world, but to look at his word. So let's look at this first of eight. We're just going to look at two of them today. Eight Beatitudes. The first one is verse three. It says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And notice the, in the second part of verse three, the, the present tense, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, this is interesting because though many of you know this passage, it's overwhelmingly future. If you look at every other verb in the Beatitudes, will be comforted, uh, will inherit the earth, will be filled, will be, will be. So it's all, the, the general sense here is future. There will be a time when we are in the new heavens and the new earth, and there will be complete and full and total comfort and peace. And that is the bulk and the gist of the emphasis of this sermon. But at the very beginning in verse three, and then at the very end in the eighth beatitude, we, we have the present tense. Look down at verse 10, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So number one and number eight of these beatitudes are in the present. And I want to suggest that that is no accident. Although the general spirit and flavor of this is future oriented and, and thinking about what we are going to inherit in the new heavens and the new earth, there is already a sense in which we are experiencing the kingdom of God on earth now. We have a taste of it. Dietrich Bonhoeffer had had beautiful tastes of it. Every Christmas as his family would worship together, they were musically talented people. And their family, their large family would gather and they would play instruments and they would sing praises to Jesus and they would experience a, a flavor of the kingdom of God in their homes. 
We experience a taste of the kingdom of God as we gather together on Sunday mornings throughout the year. So there is a reason for this present tense. We have a taste of it now, but the blessing is to come to us now. It is also to come to us totally and completely and absolutely in the future. So I've jumped ahead of myself and talked about the present tense and what it means to have a taste of the kingdom of God now, but I've skipped over the main thing in verse three. Those that are blessed are not the rich and the powerful and the famous and the beautiful. Those who have the nicest homes and the nicest cars and the most influence. That is not what we find taught in this sermon on the Mount. What we find here at the very beginning is blessed are the poor in spirit. And so we must ask, what does that mean? What does it mean to be poor in spirit? Matthew Henry very simply puts it this way. He says, it is to be humble and lowly in our own eyes. He goes on, Matthew Henry, he writes this, this poverty of spirit is put first among the Christian graces. He's describing these eight beatitudes as Christian graces. This poverty of spirit is put first. The philosophers did not reckon humility among their moral virtues, but Christ puts it first. Self-denial is the first lesson to be learned in his school and poverty of spirit entitled to the first beatitude. The foundation of all other graces is laid in humility. Those who would build high must begin low. This is what it looks like for us to be blessed. It is to be emptied of self-confidence and self-righteousness and self, self, self. I determine what's right. I determine the truth. I determine X, Y, and Z. I determine what I'm going to be about. I'm going to determine what my authority is. I am my own authority. Blessed are the poor in spirit who recognize our default settings are fleshly and selfish And we are desperate, we are bankrupt spiritually, and we need the Holy Spirit, and we need Jesus. Blessed are the poor in spirit. As we look across the scriptures, we see a whole variety of examples of people who are poor in spirit. I've just flipped over to Luke 15. You don't need to turn there, but you're familiar with this, one of the most familiar parables that Jesus taught the parable of the prodigal son. Perhaps it should actually be titled the parable of the two lost sons, or it should maybe even better be titled entitled the parable of the older son and the younger son. And we are to look at the older son and the younger son. and, And most of us will identify with one of them or the other. We're most familiar with the younger son in this parable who goes to his dad and and says, hey, uh, I don't want to wait. I want all my inheritance, all the money now. And then he goes and he parties. He lives like laughing at sin, the idea of it. He is his own authority. He is his own person. And he goes and he parties and and he lives what he thought was the good life. 
And then he realizes that that what he thought was the good life was actually a life that leads to death and destruction and depression. And he says this in Luke 15, 17, he says, when I came, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. This is a picture of what it means to be poor in spirit. He thought he had things figured out. He had all the money he needed. He had the partying life. And he ends up broken and empty and poor in spirit. And this is his beginning of finding joy and peace and happiness. This is the beginning of the season of blessing in his life. When he has nothing. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, there is a correlation in the scriptures between poverty, between being materially poor, and being poor in spirit. But that correlation is not an absolute one. One need not necessarily be poor materially to be poor in spirit. If we just stay with the same parable, the father in the parable is a man of great wealth. A man who has servants and all kinds of animals and livestock. And he, he commands his servants to do this and they do it. And he tells this servant to do that and he does it. And, and, and he celebrates and is gracious toward both of his sons who are lost. So the father in that, in that parable is poor in spirit. Although he is rich in material possessions. The younger son who loses everything has no material possessions and no money is also poor in spirit. So a blessed Christmas in 2020 begins with being humble and lowly and being poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In his classic study on the Sermon on the Mount, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes this. Speaking about what it means to be poor in spirit, he says it means a complete absence of pride, a complete absence of self-assurance and of self-reliance. It means a consciousness that we are nothing in the presence of God. Let me pause here for just a moment. If you're listening carefully to me, if you're not listening carefully, what I, what I am not saying is that we should think that we are lame, that we are worthless, that we are all dirtbags, that we are all, we should just kind of cower down and, and be godly in a corner and just feel how miserable we are. That is not what I am saying. That's not what Martin Lloyd-Jones is saying. It means a consciousness that we are nothing in the presence of God. That phrase is really important in in Lloyd-Jones' comments. In the presence of God, I am nothing. He is so massive, so holy, so infinite, so glorious that I become poor in spirit when I enter into his presence. I I am just small. 
It is nothing then that we can produce, Lloyd-Jones says. That is, being poor in spirit is not something I can produce. I can't give you three steps to be poor in spirit. It is nothing we can do in ourselves. The way to become poor in spirit is to look at God. We become poor in spirit when we enter into his presence and we see ourselves for who we really are. We're pretty small compared to him. A blessed Christmas 2020 begins with being humble and being lowly. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Second and final beatitude for today is verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. You can't think of a beatitude or a blessing that is more contrary to our worldly culture probably than verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn. Paraphrase, blessed are those who grieve. Blessed are those who cry. Blessed are those who weep. What is this talking about? Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Again, here we move into the the future emphasis, which is the emphasis of all of these beatitudes on the new heavens and the new earth. Blessed are those Christ followers who mourn and who weep and who grieve. One day they will be completely 100% comforted in peace in the new heavens and the new earth. They will also be blessed in this life. Blessed are those who mourn. So the obvious question here is, what are we supposed to mourn about? What are we supposed to cry or weep for? And there are many, many answers to this. I'm going to give three of them before we finish up. Number one, we are to mourn for our own sins. We are to mourn for our own sins. I am to mourn for my sins. If I turn the page over in this same sermon, as he's sitting on this small hillside above the Sea of Galilee, he said this to the massive crowd, 7 in verse 3, Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. In this short second of eight beatitudes, he doesn't tell us specifically what we are to mourn for. So scripture interprets scripture. We study the scriptures to find out what is it we are supposed to mourn for. We turn the page and we see we should be mourning that we have difficulty, that Mike Ernst has difficulty seeing the specks in his own eye. 
should I say, the two by four in my own eye. I mean, I'm trouble saying it. I'm having trouble seeing the planks in my own eye. I am an expert at identifying the, the specks in my children and in my wife's lives. And I got a long list here of, for them. Do you guys want to hear it? No, I'm just kidding. We all could do that, couldn't we? Blessing looks very different if we look at the word of God than if we look at our culture. We cannot look at the world. If we want to know what blessing looks like, we have to look at the word. And we are called to mourn for our own sins. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul writes this. He says, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. I'm reading this passage right now because of that phrase. When Paul says, of whom I am the worst, what is he saying? Is he saying that he is worse on an objective level than Judas? That is not what he's saying. What he's saying is when he enters into the presence of God and he sees the holiness in the infinitude and the beauty and the glory and the grace and the mercy of God, Paul can see that he himself is the worst of sinners because he knows himself the most. And so Paul in 1 Timothy 1 is poor in spirit. He goes on. He's not saying I'm, I'm a dirtbag and I should be in the corner with my Bible just thinking I'm terrible. That's not what he's saying. Let me finish what he says in 1 Timothy 1. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. Paul sees himself as a billboard for the gospel. Jesus has transformed him. He is a billboard for the gospel and he is simultaneously the worst of sinners. Another way to say it is he is poor in spirit. He's recognized the emptiness of himself apart from God. And he mourns his own sins. He mourns his own sins. He is, he is poor in spirit. We should mourn for our own sins. Second, we should mourn for the afflictions of others. We should mourn for the afflictions of others. Romans 12, 15, mourn with those who mourn. Other translations say weep with those who weep. To read the whole verse, it says rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, mourn with those who mourn. Now it's another sermon and a more uh, exciting one to preach rejoice with those who rejoice. But this sermon coming out of verse three is blessed are those who mourn. What are we supposed to mourn? about. We are supposed to mourn with others who are mourning. We could have a lot of testimonies right now. If I just start inviting you up to hear stories about your neighbors, about your family members, about your classmates, among, uh, about your fellow, fellow believers, part of this fellowship or another who are afflicted right now 
who are suffering. Whether that's physical suffering, whether that's spiritual suffering, whether it's grieving the loss of someone. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who, who find people they love who are hurting and hurt with them. You show love by, by, by being alongside of them and literally weeping with them. Being an active listener to their weeping and mourning and grieving. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. We mourn for our own sins. We mourn for the afflictions of others. And then the last thing really we're going to look at today is one example of our Lord mourning, of him weeping. I could go to a variety of passages, but I am looking at Luke chapter 19. And this is the passage where Jesus is finally arriving in Jerusalem. If you read the gospel of Luke, it's basically a road to Jerusalem. It's a road to the cross. The whole gospel of Luke, Jesus is on his way to this destination. And he finally arrives in the city. It marks the beginning point of, of the end of the crucifixion. It's the beginning of the end. And it says in Luke 19, as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. He mourned. He grieved. This wasn't a little trickle of a tear. This was, this was massive grieving, weeping, mourning. He wept over it and said, if you, even you had only known on this day, what would bring you peace? But now it is hidden from your eyes. They were spiritually blind to see that peace was in front of them, that the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world had come into Jerusalem to die as their sin substitute and be raised on the third day. And Jesus mourns. He weeps. What are you and I to mourn about? What are we to mourn for? For our own sins, for the afflictions of others, and for those without Christ as Lord and Savior. That is what Jesus is weeping for on that triumphal entry, the paradox of his triumphal entry coming in to Jerusalem. Church, this is what it looks like as a Christ follower, to be blessed. It is so different than what our culture that really preaches loudly into my life and into your life, what blessing actually looks like biblically is almost the exact opposite. And let's be honest, the, our culture preaches with all kinds of media and fanciness and, and power that often reaches us, that often reaches me. We've covered two of the eight Beatitudes, two of the eight qualities of what it means to be blessed this Christmas season and in all of life. Stay tuned for the six more that will be coming as we move toward Christmas Eve. Let's bow our heads now and ask the Lord to help us to have a blessed Christmas season. Father in heaven, 
Lord, help us to enter into your presence. Help us by your grace, by the power of the Holy Spirit, to be poor in spirit. To consider others more important than ourselves. To have the joy that comes only from making you our boast. Protect us from the evil one and the messages of this world about what blessing is. Lord, some of us here today need to open our eyes to our own sins. Some of us here today need to open our eyes to those around us who are suffering. And we need to intentionally come alongside them and weep with them, mourn with them, love them. And then lastly, Lord, many of us, unlike Jesus, look at our neighbors and our family members, and we do not weep for those who do not know Christ as Savior and Lord. In fact, we may view them as blessed in the worldly evil sense of blessing. Free us from that perspective and help us to weep for those who do not know Christ as Lord and Savior. As Jesus did as he went into Jerusalem and wept over that city that by and large rejected him and killed him. We thank you for your death, Jesus, in our place, in history, in reality. We are thankful that you are our Lord, you are our authority, and we submit to you. And we pray we would have a blessed Christmas season, 2020. In Jesus' name, amen.